0: to episode 19 of the Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler. I'm the host, and uh, I work for the University of Alaska Fairbanks as a professor of social work. And this morning, I am blessed to be joined by my co-host, Diana, who's in Fairbanks. How's it going today, Diana? We can't hear you.
1: was working five minutes ago. How's it now?
0: We got you.
1: Okay, cool. It's going all right. I'm excited to talk to Leilani today. Um, Our guest, of course, is Leilani Maxera. She's a licensed clinical social worker and a daughter of the Hawaiian diaspora raised in Martinez, California. Leilani was called home to Hawaii in her early 30s and currently lives in Manoa Valley on Oahu. Um, Leilani's a therapist, death educator, and grief worker with her own private practice.
2: Kai, I can. I can like it's okay, yes, I can so say it's uh Kaipu o kuoloku.
1: Beautiful, but impossible for my sad little tongue. Anyway, it's a therapy, depth work, and consulting business. Leilani worked and volunteered in harm reduction for 14 years before opening her private practice, including managing a syringe exchange and an overdose prevention program where she conducted training and education with other social service organizations to teach about overdose prevention and response and reduce the stigma around drug use.
0: Yeah, Thanks, Diana, and, and welcome, Leilani. I feel very fortunate to have both of you joining me with this morning. We have a A lot of great things to dialogue to get down talk story about uh there's a few things we got to cover first uh diana
1: all right the critical social worker is supported by the social work department at the university of alaska fairbanks however we want to be clear that any opinions expressed on the podcast whether by the host the guest or listeners calling in do not necessarily reflect the values of that social work department the college of liberal arts or the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and any of its affiliates. The opinions and ideas shared today belong to the speaker alone.
0: Yeah, thanks, Dan. And that's important. Uh, we can be very opinionated folks with a lot to say. We talking to Leilani yesterday. You know, she gave us a little disclaimer that, you know, her ideas <laughs> might be considered radical by some. But uh, the whole point of this, part of, the, part of the philosophy of this podcast is for folks to be able to say whatever that is on their mind, say whatever they think, whatever they believe. And so just like I told Leilani yesterday, I encourage her to speak her mind and don't let uh, the critical social worker by any means uh, censor her in any way. But with that being said, like I said, what um, Diana just said is important. If you have a beef or you have a problem or you disagree or you don't like something that any of us says, uh, first of all, I would invite you just to take it up within the episode. You have the chat box on the right or you, you're welcome to call in and share your opinion. Um, Later on, or you can send me an email at CASTETLER, that's C A S T E T T L E R at Alaska.edu. If you have any issues at all, uh, just remember uh, what we say is, uh, comes from our opinion alone and does not represent the University of Alaska Fairbanks, uh, the College of Liberal Arts, or the Department of Social Work. Um, our opinions are our own. And with that being said, Diana, can you share our mission statement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Critical Social Worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster critical dialogue, empathy, and understanding for all listeners. Through storytelling grounded in social work values, we aim to change ourselves and the world, one story at a time.
0: Right on. And one of those one of the underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. So we here at The Critical Social Worker, we believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences. We want to help unfold some of those layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that help build critical consciousness.
1: And for anyone interested in social work in general, um, the UAF Social Work Department is great. It's one of the top rated online BSW programs in the country, and it's full of caring and attentive faculty like Professor Stetler here. So it's pretty great.
0: Thanks. And if you're interested in UAF social work, the best way to find us is just go to Google and search UAF social work or Facebook. Um, you can find us on either of those. If you want more information or you can reach out to me, what about you? Do you have a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on the show as a guest to tell your story, to share your stories? Uh, well we believe that everybody has a unique story to tell, especially all you uh, revolutionary social workers out there. So if you're interested in, uh, Talking story with me uh, on this platform, we'd love to hear for you. Excuse me, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, so, like I said, you can hit me up on here, or you can reach out to me at ca.stetler@alaska.edu. At hit me up via UAF social work page, or you can find me on our production uh, page on Instagram, which is a conscious party.
1: And of course, as always, if you find value in the critical social worker, if it's become a good part of your life uh please support the podcast by leaving a review on spotify or apple podcasts and you can also stay updated by following us on call in all
0: right thanks diana well i think it's time that we should get this conscious party started for real hey yo everyone gather around it's story time Brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks, Department of Social Work, and A Conscious Party Productions. You are listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast.
2: A Conscious Party.
0: Revolutionizing our minds.
2: Elevating our consciousness.
0: Changing our worlds.
2: Your story.
0: My story. Our story. All right. All right. Um, well, as I was thinking about uh, this episode with Leilani, um, the issue of death came up. And so I just want to share a little bit of a story about my life. You know, our lives, uh, our life stories often take unexpected twists and, twists and turns. You know, and today, before, like I said, before we dig into this dialogue, this conversation with Leilani, I want to share a little bit of my own life story. Um, you know, and I, I typically Share little bits and pieces in this opening little segment uh, from week to week. And this story of my life uh, it revolves around the theme of death. So as a child, I was incredibly fortunate to be surrounded by an extensive family network that included multiple generations of grandparents. In fact, my earliest birthday memory includes a cherished photograph from my first birthday that includes six generations of my family. My myself included all encapsulated in a, in a photo. And I meant to bring that photo, but I forgot. Um, But anyways, in that photo I had me, I had me, my mother, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandmother, and my great-great-great-grandmother. And actually my great-great-great-grandmother was holding me in the photo and it made the the picture of the local newspaper. It's not very often that you get six generations together. But being born into a family uh, with such age, with that, excuse me, at such an age level, you know, great-great-great-grandparents got to be up there in the 80s and 90s at the youngest. Um, It meant that uh, I had to face the reality of death early on as a child. I lost many of these older family members during my formative years. I specifically remember visiting my great-grandmother Grace, excuse me, a great-great-grandmother Grace in the hospital shortly before her passing. I don't remember how old I was, but I was just a little boy. I remember standing there in the hospital room, and there was something about the way that she looked at me. It was like a gaze that seemed to pierce through my soul. And it left me feeling as if she could somehow see my future or she knew something about me that, that uh, nobody else knew. It sounds a little bit far-fetched, but I actually discovered later on after she passed that she was a fortune teller, a seer of sorts. And so it's very interesting, you know, the things that we are perceptive to as, a ch- as children. As maybe sometimes we can lose later on in adulthood. Anyways, uh, my childhood experiences with death were both profound and confusing. You know, one of the things that I don't recall is having anyone there to help me process through those losses, um, you know, to answer the many questions that bubb- were bubbled up in my young mind at that time. So, anyways, decades passed. All those grandparents, all those great, at least the great, 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 the great, great, and the great grandparents all passed away. Um, I continued to navigate life's inevitable ups and downs. And eventually, I found myself working as an intern at Kualoha Olumau. It's an opioid maintenance clinic, or what some might refer to as a methadone clinic. I found, I, it's, it's one of those places I found part of my calling there. I was working with individuals grappling with opioid and heroin addiction. And the irony of it all was that uh, the staff invariably ended up assigning me with their most challenging clients, something that happens in most of the places that I work. Um, these were the, the clients, the ha- hamana, as we call them, students, they were the ones that had been permanently barred, dismissed, 86 from the other groups that were held at Kualoha. Um, but these so-called difficult clients, they were I didn't see them that way. Um, they ended up being the most rewarding ones to work with for me. Um, we formed bonds, we learned from each other, and they even began to look forward to our group sessions, showing up early. You know, the worst—the the ones that were described as the worst, the most problem, I called them problem children, but these were actually older folks. Um, they were the ones that helped me the most. They showed up to set up the chairs, they showed up, made coffee. They were the ones that participated the most in the circles, uh, the talking circles, sharing their, you know, their ups, their downs, their highs, their lows, uh, high tides, low tides. Um, and when I left Kualoha, I carried with me a sense of fulfillment and joy about the work that I had done, the work that we had done together, me and the hamana. Um, but the joy of these accomplishments was somewhat shattered when I returned to Oahu a few years later. Um, I was working at Hawaii Pacific University, which has a downtown campus, downtown classrooms. It's where a lot of uh, uh, people without homes, uh, chronic drug users, you know, they can congregate in that area. And so I thought I might see a few of them. Um, And uh, right uh, on the way to uh, work one morning, uh, I think I taught on Saturdays actually at that time, uh, I had a chance encounter with one of my old hamana, one of my former clients. And uh, we spoke for a while, uh, spoke about some good things, uh, but mostly we spoke about bad news. Um, I learned that many of those that I had worked with so closely had passed away just in a couple of years. Um, another had been severely uh, disabled. I actually saw that guy a few weeks later. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with uh, Oahu and Waikiki area, I was at the Marco Polo building just on the other side of the, the uh Alawai Canal. And there's a little store, a little corner store in the bottom of, of, of uh, the Marco Polo building. And I saw this old hunched figure, you know, looking like 90 years old and hunched over, could barely walk. And uh, that was the, the other guy that he was talking about. And it was really hard for me to see him because he was such a, even though, you know, like I said, he was a chronic opioid user, had problems going on. I didn't expect to see him like that and it was hard. Um, and then, you know, you add in all of the, the stories of death and loss people that I expected to see again, you know, smile at me when, they, when, I, when I saw them again. Those losses, they hit me hard. Um, I didn't really know how to deal with it. I didn't have anybody to process with. I didn't work there anymore. The old, uh, uh, my old supervisor, Lisa, she wasn't working there anymore. So I really didn't have anybody to process with, you know, uh, about these losses. And it reminded me of the harsh realities faced by social workers, you know, especially with those social workers that are working with individuals that are battling with chronic substance use or substance abuse. We form connections. We invest ourselves emotionally in their journeys. And then sometimes we have to come face-to-face with their loss. Um, you know, and I had experienced this somewhat to a, a, another degree, too, with, you know, I used to supervise a juvenile treatment facility. And uh, as time went on, you know, some people add you on Facebook and social media or they reach out to you. And I have you know, seen some positive outcomes and whatnot we've also seen a lot of negative out or heard about a lot of negative outcomes. And it's just hard to take when you think, you know, you put not just your efforts and your will and your motivations and, and whatnot into helping folks and, and seeing what, but, but, you know, and I know they try to frown on this somewhat in the modern era of social work, but, you know, like I said, you form you form these bonds, you form relationships, you know, that are mutually beneficial, mutually, um, you know, heartfelt and, uh, for me, there's no way to get around that. I know for some, some folks, they would, again, they would uh, advise us to shy away from that. But for me, there's no way around that. And so you have to come face to face with the losses and with the difficulties and the pain when things go that, you know, they go that direction. So these personal experiences are one of the reasons that I'm so excited to have Leilani on the podcast uh, this morning. Um, we share the common thread, the task of, of uh, confronting death in our professional lives, albeit in different ways. So Leilani, I was wondering if you could open up, you know, this this dialogic part of our, our conversation here, of this podcast episode, and I'm hoping that you can begin by sharing a story of your own that might encapsulate, you know, your current death mm-hmm. work, what mm-hmm. it means to you.
2: Yeah, yeah sure. Thank you. And, th- and thanks again. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, it's, it was interesting listening to your, your story of, of your childhood because it was interestingly opposite of mine and and my story is what brought me to death work um, in terms of how you're talking about the generations of and seeing death at such a young age in your family because of, of having multi-generations um, in your life and so, um, you know, just quickly how I came to death work and how I got here is uh I, I had a very small family actually uh, my my mother is native Hawaiian and, and Russian Jew. Her, her mother was like, uh, her parents were Russian immigrants and, her, um, and then my, my grandfather was native Hawaiian and a uh, long, longer, much longer story <laughs> that we don't have time for, but my grandfather died very young and my grandmother moved, uh, had left Hawaii. They'd left Hawaii and, and were on the continent. And so we just kind of grew up with my grandma, my mom, and my my mom's sister and my dad was kind of in the picture and that's it right so not no not (laughs) multi-generations and so um you know I had dealt with death on a peripheral level not people as close to me um or it was like sudden death which is a little uh, different to deal with um but in my early 20s uh 17 years ago my grandmother died And, um, she had pancreatic cancer and she had dementia and it was a very long, drawn out, painful death. And I lost my mind. I'll just be honest. (laughs) Like I was, I, you know, I guess what I had, what you can characterize, uh, which wouldn't, you know, be called this (laughs) clinically, but a nervous breakdown, um, you know, when she died, just completely like. Lost it because it was just such a hard, painful experience for me. And once I came out of that, um, you know, all I could think was like, how can I, you know, help other people not experience what I experienced? Um, and, you know, if, if you've ever been a caretaker, you know, when you're in the midst of it, you don't really have time for other things. Like, I had to keep the job I had at the time because I needed my health care. And, um, so I was a zombie. I, I sucked at my job. I went to work like, so I could keep my health care. Was miserable, and then you know went to be with my grandmother when I wasn't at work as much as possible. And um, I, you know, this was the early my early twenties. I'm 42 now, so I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a smartphone. <laughs> um, I didn't have access to a lot of stuff um, at the time that uh you know i that was educational that is more freely out there because of social media like what is hospice what is an advanced care directive what what options do people have at the end of life and so um i was angry so basically my death work was born out of anger like i was very upset that my grandma didn't have it didn't have to be that way there were other options there were other things available and so i kind of you know, ever since then, have tried to find all the ways that I can be of service um, in terms of helping people um, make choices, prepare for death. Um, it, and I ended up, I only became a social worker a couple of years ago. I actually, weirdly, um, at the time, was like, I'm going to be a nurse. And I went and did all the prerequisites for nursing and changed my mind. <laughs> Cause I was like, I think I'd be a shitty nurse. <laughs> um, and then I ended up getting a master's in public health and aging thinking I could do, you know, some top down, just like change things on a macro level. Um, and, and for years, you know, i I was like kind of unhappy with the types of jobs that having a master's in public health got me. So I went back to school to be a social worker because I was like, this is if I have a social work degree, this is how I can work with people. I'm sick of being, you know, a manager. I want to work directly with people. So went back, got my master's social work, like not that long ago. <laughs> so I'm more new to social work than you, of course, but I would say I've been doing social work for, for 20 years, but just finally got the degree like maybe six, seven years ago. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of this, uh, <sighs> students, both in, that I've had in Hawaii and Alaska yeah. have, have a similar story to you about nursing or sometimes it's dentistry mm-hmm. or something like that, but yeah. they were into it <laughs> and they realized it wasn't for them. And so they're looking to transfer over and, and get it done in social work. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for sharing that little bit of a story. And I wonder before we go further deeper into, you know, some of your insights mm-hmm. on the field, how about you tell us what death work is? What does that even, what does that mean? And what does that encapsulate for you or for anyone that's doing death work? I think it's a, it's an unfamiliar topic for many of us. Thank
2: oh, thank you. Yeah, that's a great question because I think that it's kind of the, maybe the public's perception of what death work is a little, is a little skewed at this time. And I think it's because the last few years we've seen the rise of the term death doula um and that's you know been much very popularized you see a lot of articles about it they you know things on tv um and so when people think of doula you know you think of a birth doula right so somebody who helps helps you through the birth process well it's the same with what a death doula does but i think that a lot of what's focused on because it's um you know, it's, is more sensational, but also, you know, easier to like for people to comprehend is, is bedside death work. So like being there to walk people through at the end, but, and, and so, and that is a part of death work, but I think that that's what mostly what people think about. Um, but it's so much more than that. Like death work is, is helping people process grief and, you know, pre- and post-death, helping people with advanced care directives, helping people navigate hospice palliative care and insurance, um, you know, helping people just talk about their fear of death, which is something that comes up quite often in, in my work is is approaching people Um you know, you know, to, to do talks and things and people be like, I am, I can't even talk about it. How do I start there? Right. So there's people doing that work all over the, you know, the spectrum of, of what death work is. So, um, and we need people doing all of it <laughs> too. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. For me personally, um, my biggest focus is grief work. Um, I run several support groups, um, and medical aid in dying is a is a big piece of work that I that I do in hawaii there is uh, medical aid in dying is legal here it's only it's not legal in every state but it is in hawaii the law passed right before covid uh in 2019 which is kind of rough because then the education you know people the education didn't get out there so much you know about about it passing because obviously we had a wider issues to be dealt with at the time and uh so The part of the law here is that a therapist has to do a capacity evaluation for people who request the medication to Under to make sure they understand what they're asking for, to like to say this person understands that if they take this medication, they will die, and so it's actually hard to find therapists here who will do it. And we have a, as as you probably do in Alaska, I imagine it might be even worse there. We have a shortage of all medical providers in Hawaii. Uh, You know whether it's you know nurses, doctors, therapists, social workers, we have a shortage of of everything it's and it's worse neighbor islands so i started doing uh, i started volunteering doing capacity evaluations so that people could get through the process because it's just one of the many steps people were being uh what's we're looking for like just kind of stopped in their tracks in the process because they couldn't get past that because nobody would do the evaluation so i've done uh, 31 now this actually this week it makes 31 uh evaluations. I volunteer doing them remotely to make it easier for folks. And I run two medical aid and dying support groups for loved ones whose, uh, that ch- that choice was made, for, uh, made, they made the choice of using MAID. And so that that's a big part of the work I do, grief work and advanced care planning, helping people talk about, sort out their wishes so their loved ones know. You know I'll stop there because <laughs> I feel like that's getting to be a lot if you have other questions to, to jump in. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm I'm curious about, and i to word this the right way, but, you know, when I was growing up, what was it, Dr. Kevorkian was the big thing about euthanasia and whatnot. And I don't even remember when that was, the 90s or what. Yeah. But, but, you know, you have, in social work, you know, we're supposed to make sure that our clients have autonomy, right? I Mm -hmm. even remember when I was taking the, uh, I can't remember if it was the LSW or the CSW, the master's level licensing. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what it was in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I was taking the exam, and one of the questions were like, you know, I can't remember the guy's name, but you have this guy named Bill and he's an alcoholic that lives under the bridge. All his family wants him to get help. You think that he can do great in life, but the dude just wants to go live under the bridge. What do you do? He wants to be an mm-hmm. alcoholic under the bridge. And the answer was that you need to let him be- make his own choices. Yeah. And social workers can be good at that. Oftentimes, you know, letting, you know, meeting the client where they're at, letting, uh, you know, them make their own decisions and helping support them in that way. Sometimes where we run into problems is when it clashes with our moral beliefs. Um, Those can be religious. Those can be cultural. Those can be come from many different sources, but, you know, I think um, not necessarily even saying that many people would be against, um, you know, uh, what was the terminology used? Oh,
2: medical aid in dying. I hear you were probably about safe assisted suicide, which is like the old terminology for it. That's sometimes. Yeah. Medical Medical aid in dying. dying.
0: Yeah. 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 So I think that, and this is just a guess, an assumption, but um, I, would, I would imagine that most people, most social workers haven't even really explored that topic that much. Some mm-hmm. probably have. but Many may not have even thought about it because they never imagined that they might come into those kind of circumstances. Yeah. And so I always believe, you know, that we as social workers, the best thing we can do is explore those things before we have to, to deal with them in, in, in the real world. So I was just wondering if you might be able to unpack some of them, you know, not necessarily your own morals, you're welcome to do that if you want, but I mean... <laughs> You know, the morals behind it and some of the conflicts that might take place. You mentioned that there were therapists that don't want to do it or are unwilling to do it. yeah, well,
2: Well, and, and, you know, I can't speak for the reasoning for other people, but I but I think some of it isn't even as much about um, their morals around it, but also that they don't know that this is a possibility to assist in this way. A lot of people are uneducated about the law here and and may not even know that this capacity evaluation is part of the process. Like, Like I said, it's not in other States, but also, uh insurance billing that's the things i volunteer doing this i don't i don't get paid whereas you know uh some other therapists that do it they bill insurance well that that person might uh, not have the insurance that you take that you know it's it's uh takes longer to bill probably for the encounter than it does to actually do the evaluation right so some people it might not be they might not see it as uh you know for you know, not to sound crass about it, but it might not be worth their time, they think, you know, if, if it's not something they believe in uh, strongly. And, and with me, I believe strongly in making it this available. I was, I was absolutely enthusiastic, soaked that the law passed here because when I was, you know, I talked about my, my grandmother's death. Medical aid in dying is legal in California now. It was not when she was dying. And it's funny you mentioned Jack Vorkin because I was way, I was a little too young to really understand what was going on when his trial was happening. And it was on the news all the time, but my grandma was a big news person. Um, And I remember her saying, and I'm going to quote her directly, you know, with cussing a little bit. She was watching and I was like, I don't understand what's going on, grandma. And she's like, he's a goddamn hero. And I, that always stuck with me because I, at the time, I still kind of didn't understand, but I was like, okay, grandma likes this guy. <laughs> what's what's he about, right? And, I, you know, I kind of learned over time that she really, she really believed people had, should have the autonomy to make that choice for themselves. And some of his methods were questionable and his, he was kind of a pompous guy in a lot of ways. He wasn't, he was not perfect by any means, but I'm glad that he had brought at the time that conversation into you know, the, the larger cultural sphere. And so when you fast forward and, you know, this might be a little upsetting for folks, but it's, it's real. It's my truth. Uh, When my grandma was dying, she, she, she wanted to, she would beg to die. She would say, I wish someone would kill me. Like, I can't do this anymore. Please like beg people to kill her. I, I mean, I don't know about people, but me specifically when we were alone. And it was, It made it so much worse to know that she didn't have that choice. And if, if I had helped her with that choice or anyone else did, we would go to prison probably. Right. So she did not die on her own terms. And, you know, that really informed my feelings about medical aid and dying that people should have the autonomy to make that choice for themselves. And, you know, to link it back to harm reduction, what you were saying about that question on your quiz, like, what do you do? Someone wants to do this with your life. You know, if someone is in, as, as you know, as a social worker, what we call the pre contemplative stage with their drug and alcohol use. And they're like, this is where I'm at. You can't force anything on anyone. Right. If they're not there yet, they're not there yet. Um, and I think in that way, Linking my harm reduction work and my death work, they do have a lot in common to me. And a lot of it is about autonomy, about personal choice, about freedom uh, to, to do what is right for you. And so I appreciate that you brought up that, that example because I feel like they are linked in that way.
0: Yeah, why, and then this may be a, a difficult question, but why do you think it's important for people that are, that are dying to be able to have autonomy and how they pass on?
2: Oh, because they, the choice should be ours to decide if you, because a lot of people will say one thing I hear a lot, and I guess to back up, you know, I, like I said, I run two support groups for folks whose loved one chose medical aid in dying. And the reason I run separate support groups for those folks is they, they they'll go to other support groups like hospices, you know, are, are with federal funding are legally required to offer bereavement support. Right. So there's other things available to them usually, but they're not sure how people are going to react to them and their story, right? So we've had people um, – so I've met people whose loved one uh, chose medical aid and they tell everyone, right? They want they want to educate people that it's a choice, that this is available. And, and I've met people that do not tell other people that that is the choice their loved one made because, you know, maybe their other family members are religious, or and, and against it, or they don't know how people react, or they're embarrassed, or maybe they're conflicted about it. And one common thing I've heard is in in doing this grief work is people saying, like, sometimes I feel like I, I helped them die, like, and, and, and I killed them by doing that, when, you know, it wasn't, you know, and they're like, Oh, you know, was it suicide? And it's like, it's not medical, it's not the medication that killed them, their disease was killing them. They just made the choice when that, you know, the people who take the medication are terminally ill. They don't have long to live. They made a choice. They have made, they had the autonomy to make the choice of going on their own terms.
0: Yeah. So obviously, as you just touched on just a little bit, those practitioners, whether they're social workers or, or whatever their professional field is that are assisting in this way, they obviously can have, you know, uh, dilemmas in their mind and their consciousness mm-hmm. and their feelings afterwards, like you just mentioned, feeling that they're, that they're the one that killed them. So you mentioned, uh, you have support groups. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, but what other ways do social workers or those that are assisting, what other ways do they need help as far as debriefing mm-hmm. process? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, I strongly believe that social service agencies need to have bereavement support as part of their of the work that they do. So like, as you mentioned, where you worked cool, like, I I don't know what they had set up, but if you work in a methadone clinic, if you work in syringe exchange, if you work with people who are houseless, if you work in end of life care, I do think that it is up to agencies to provide that support around trauma and around death. It's one of the things that I actually do with my consulting piece of my business is I do do, uh, several support groups for social service agencies and i you know i i think that this should be available at all of them whether it's in-house or having someone else come in because this is incredibly traumatic work that folks are doing when you do uh, many types of social work and you get let's let's be frank most people especially in hawaii get paid rubbish the pay is so low (laughs) for doing the hardest work and so not number 1 the thing i always you know to take every platform i can to say is pay your workers a living wage social service agencies right like social workers people you know you know uh peer support specialists everybody who does this work needs to get paid a living wage number 1 is how they can be supported but number 2 not like not pretending that this work is not incredibly a taxing mentally and emotionally on people and just letting them go at the end of the day. You know, so having, if there are support groups for staff, if you can offer that, if you can offer individual counseling, if you can offer um, employee assistance program, uh, you know, incident debriefing when someone dies um, that you work with, like all those things should be part of social services. And I think that it's actually, goes against, you know, our code of ethics as social workers to, you know, for agencies not to be doing that type of care for their staff and volunteers.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, I've been a part of many social work agencies and I'm not saying all these places didn't offer it, but I wasn't aware of it. Um, and, uh, you know, even my wife, she's a clinical social worker here in Juneau. And, uh, just, I can't remember a couple of weeks ago or so, she just came home and she was just not necessarily distraught, but, you know, she was like, she was troubled and and she told me about a client that uh, had passed on and she just didn't know how to process it or deal with it. You know, as a, oftentimes as a, as we know, as a clinical social worker, you go and you talk to people throughout the day and you know, you have a little time to do your notes, but you oftentimes you don't really have the time Mm -hmm. uh, or even like the uh, resources in order to, to debrief yourself. And so, you know, it's, and it was hard for me because, you know, when somebody comes and they tell you they're struggling with the loss of a client or a loss of somebody that I don't know, Mm -hmm. um it's 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 hard to i mean not saying i can't empathize at all but it's really hard to get to that level that you need to be at to to help somebody you know when i'm unfamiliar and unconnected to the situation and so i just remember thinking at that time that you know that i wish that she would have had somebody that would have been there for her at that time Um, and i'm wondering when you talk about this just from your experience you know is it is it a normal thing for uh for agencies to have something like this on hand or is it something that's growing? Where are we at right now? It's
2: it's definitely not normal enough. (laughs) Um, When I put out there that I was going to offer this as one of of the things I do when I started my own private practice, I got, I, some people were like, what? (laughs) What are you like? I didn't know that, that, that people had that. And there are some people that um, were like, Oh yeah, my, you know, I you know I would love that, and it, where it came from for me was when I the first syringe exchange no, the, actually the second syringe exchange I ever worked at in San Francisco. We were blessed enough to be working closely with the harm uh, harm reduction therapy center the in in San Francisco, and they had a support group for the staff and did individual. Um, supervision and it and that's really stuck with me it didn't work well for me because the person who did ours I you know didn't really jive well with in terms of how, how they ran it but the concept really stuck with me and so you know over the years every place I worked I was like you know this this would be good this would be helpful and then the last place I worked that we found the funding to offer offer that type of support to staff. And then when COVID hit, I started a support group for our staff as well. And one thing I saw that in that role, it would have been, you know, it would have been great for, someone outside to be doing it because I was a manager. And I think some people were like, I don't want to go talk to my manager (laughs) for an extra hour. Um, So, so I think that's something to think about for some agencies in house works for some agencies. It's better to have someone from outside come that's non-biased folks feel comfortable sharing with. They, they walk out the door, you know, so that they feel more uh, that maybe they feel like they can be more honest because no manager is going to be, giving them side eye if they say something rough. Right.
0: So. Well, so in these support groups that you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned them in a couple of different capacities, but what do they look like? You know, are you in a circle? What is the, what is your, what is the method behind it? And, and what are you trying, what I guess ultimately, what are you trying to achieve?
2: Ah, uh, Well, it's for, for me, the uh, zoom, because I, you know, I work from home and the most of the places that I do groups for are on the continent, And so it's uh, online, which is not, which it's a catch, right? For some people, that's not a great thing to, they're sick of being chronically online and it's, you know, they might not want to open up. They might be more comfortable in person, but for some folks, it's actually more, uh, they do feel like they can be more honest because there's that barrier. Of, of the technology. They're not face-to-face. I let people turn the camera off, you know, too, if they don't feel like they can say things with it on. Uh, for me, you know, I, I'm hired to do a few support groups for agencies where it's mandatory for their staff to come, so it looks a little different than drop-in. Um, But it's it's I try to make it as free flowing as possible, like really give people space to say what's whatever's on their mind, what's going on with them. And we'll talk about, you know, specific clients that have died or, you know, participants in the program that have, you know, been going through and they're not sure, you know, what how to support them. Or if it's something that's activating something in them that they're struggling with, Uh, you know, we'll talk about. instance, like, did I deal with this right? What do you all think? Like, what could I do differently next time? And then also, you know, to say that I work a lot with folks um, in harm reduction and syringe exchange, and a lot of people that are hired for those jobs are coming, not, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people are coming from a place of lived experience. So they're coming from being, uh, you know, formerly homeless and sometimes very recently homeless. uh, People who you are in recovery and people who still use drugs. And so people also have a lot of their personal stuff that they're dealing with that comes to work with them. And, you know, on one hand, you know, we're, we're paid to be at work, right? As one of my mentors, Jeannie, Jeannie Little, who's at LCSW said, uh, said to me once, like we are paid to leave our shit at the door. Right. But, On the other hand, we are also human. So yes, we need to show up and do our jobs, but that doesn't negate the fact that we got shit going on in our lives. And nothing was more made this more apparent than during COVID, where folks were expected to show up to work who worked in social services. You know, I know a lot of people uh, were not, but you know, in the line of work I I was in and working in surrender exchange, we still showed up every day. We still had to go out there, and the toll that it took. On, on people was it was devastating. So having that extra layer of support is very important and necessary.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And just before we move on from death work, I just have a couple more questions. Uh, so I'm just trying to use my imagination here. So let's say there's somebody that is, wants somebody to help them with some kind of death work. How does that, how would they, I guess how would my question is how would they get in contact with the death worker? How, what's the process of that? Or what's the state of that?
2: That's a good question. Um, I think it depends on what you're looking for so for example i'm on the board of the national home funeral alliance which is a whole longer conversation about what what is a home funeral so but very quick a home funeral is a, a community-based funeral that it is absolutely legal to take care of your own dead in every state on some level you know with with the different varying degrees of having to utilize a funeral director for paperwork and such But, uh, for example, if you were looking for a home funeral guide or someone to help with, like, community death care, we have on our our website, um, you know, homefuneralalliance.org, a directory. Like, if you you could search for people near you that are helpful. Uh, If you're looking for somebody who does death doula work, there's other – if you just Google it, there's so many directories that will come up. Like uh, NELDA, um, which is international – Ne- na- international I can't remember what it stands for um Enelda is one of them and Nita, which is uh I think end of life doula network uh god I'm getting my acronyms real bad here <laughs> but I think that you can when it comes to like that type of death work you can truly just google it and there's directories that come up but then locally like someone like me who just um you know, I help people fill out their advanced directives. It would be a little harder to find me probably, but if you were in Hawaii and and, and put in Hawaii or Honolulu and advanced care planning, it might come up. We locally have, uh, for folks who are in Hawaii, we also have Kukuamao, which is, which I've also volunteered with as, uh, as a, a speaker for them. The, you know, they're the palliative care and hospice organization for Hawaii and the home for our, like our advanced care planning resources. And if you go to their website, there's a directory of people who do bereavement and grief work here on all islands and remote. So, so there's, there's places it's, it's, it's not easy. It's not like there's this one-stop shop where you can find all the resources you need, but it's getting easier to find people, I think, than it used to be.
0: What's the role of, uh, or I guess, what, uh, what's the importance in the meaning of empathy when considering death work? Why is that important?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's kind of hard to do it. (laughs) I think if people don't have empathy, they really shouldn't really be working with people in grief. Right. (laughs) So um, I think, I think that it's in, in working with people who use drugs and harm and harm reduction work and, you know, death work, it's all the same. In being a social worker in working in social services, empathy is a huge piece of it because you were, you know, you're stepping into other people's lives, Right. It's not about you. It's about them. And so if you can't show empathy, care and respect, then maybe you should be in another line of work.
0: Good answer. Uh, and lastly, while, uh, before we move on from the, the subject of death work, I was wondering if you had any uh, just any a, a story or any stories uh, that you would share about maybe some of the profound moments or transformative experiences that you've had.
2: Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, well, I would say that I guess if we're transitioning maybe to harm reduction stuff, the I think the hardest thing for me in harm reduction is says how many people have died that I've served and how how you touched on that with you two working at the methadone clinic here. It's um, it has been. So I think, I think one of the things that makes me continue to do this work and also the thing that makes me want to leave it, you know, it's such a double-edged sword is, is how many people have died that I have served in harm reduction for various reasons, but particularly drug overdose. And I think that. You know, it's, it's the same thing with how you, you said, like, you can, you, you find out that people have died that you thought were doing well. And I think that, um, I don't, I don't really want to tell any individual stories cause they're too recognizable probably, but just to echo that the, one of the hardest things about doing this work is, is the piece of, of the, uh, coming to terms with that many of the people you serve will die. And that we have to accept that. And it's not a personal failure. It's one of the first things I've told people whenever I've hired um, in the past new outreach workers or, or onboarded new volunteers working in harm reduction is that, you know, you you have to be prepared that you can do everything in your power to, you know, serve your community and you don't have control over the choices that people make. And also you don't have control over the larger systems that are failing us. We are working under, you know, conditions that are just abhorrent in terms of, of what's out there for people who use drugs right now. The drug supply is so tainted that everybody is at risk of dying who uses drugs at this time and it's it's wild. So just being prepared for death is part of working in harm reduction.
0: Yeah, and transitioning over to talking a little bit more about drugs and drug use substance use substance abuse um harm reduction all of that. You know, when I uh I went to rehab I'd say about 20 21 years ago something something like that now but and when I was out there running the streets and whatnot, it was all methamphetamine. Opioids were few and far between. I'm not saying nobody used them, but you know, you definitely weren't making—at least where I was at—weren't making a ton of money selling it. Um, I knew a few people that you know were different and they did—they you know be smoking it off some tinfoil or something. But for the most part, it wasn't there. But and 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 from just like peripheral knowledge, you know, uh, I've done some research in Alaska. Alaska also had a uh, meth was the drug of choice back then. I know Hawaii I was notorious for it. I mean, just watched okay. Dog, the Bounty Hunter or something like that. Um, but it was notorious for that. But what changed over the last 20 years or so? You know why? Why the switch to opioids? I mean, maybe you don't have that. Uh, maybe you don't know the exact answer. But I was wondering yeah. if you have any insight. Like, what changed to make people go that direction?
2: Well, I'm not the the expert on the drug supply, but I will, but I can say a little bit about that. What's interesting. You said ice, you know, well here in Hawaii, you know, ice is more the terminology folks use for methamphetamines where I grew up. um, Meth was also the drug of choice and, but it was like crank. So when I got to Hawaii, I was like, ice, what? I was like, what's that? So it, but yes, there's so many places where methamphetamines uh, are, are, have been the prevalent drug of choice and so one of the things that did happen was you know you know and i don't blame it all on oxycontin and the sacklers and everything that but it does have a huge part to do with the fact that when you know a lot of these opioid-based painkillers came out there was like advertisements made that were that were like the you know uh you know these are non-addictive, right? Like there was really fa- bad false advertising when the when those things were pushed. And you know, I've I used to do a presentation at my last job when I when I was training people on overdose prevention response that had like examples of old uh, advertisements from magazines and and adverts that were directed towards prescribers that were like free, you can make your people free from pain, you know, just, and, and one thing that I don't know about the the laws in Alaska and Hawaii around this at the time, but when I was younger in, in California, they didn't have laws around how that, that were good around bribing basically prescribers. And so people who were drug company reps could, would show up at, at your office and be like, oh, I brought your staff breakfast. Oh, I'm going to order lunch for y'all. Oh, we are having this conference in Hawaii, like, you know, with golfing and stuff like here, we have, we have vouchers for you to go to this conference and, and basically be like, are you going to get on board with prescribing this, this new drug? Right. And luckily the, the laws have changed. I don't know how, how, what the law was previously here, but you now you can't accept those things, you know, from, from drug companies, but because of it, there was a lot of pushes for different drugs for, you know, to be prescribing them more. And so opioid prescriptions like exploded. They were handing them out way too freely. And so that there's a lot of people that know maybe just had surgery or something happened and they became addicted but not even knowing they would, not understanding that they would and were, and and were totally shocked, right And then we had it's like the pendulum swung, it's like the rubber band snapping back. they realized, oh my god, there's so many opioid prescriptions out there. It has become an epidemic. we need to make it harder for doctors to prescribe. And so they just started cutting people off. And so because people got caught up from their safe more their safe and legal drug supply, some people, went to rehab. Some people quit. Some people were too addicted and far gone at that point to be able to quit easily and turn to street-based drugs and which is not a safe supply. And so that, you know, there's, I mean, I can go, I I should shut up at this point because I think I could talk for another half hour about what ended up happening there, but that did not help at all that we flooded, you know, America with opioids and then took them back basically, and then, and then cut people off. And, you know, they had, when it was so easy to get, we you know, the nickname for a lot of doctors that would just prescribe to anyone was like pill mills. And we had that problem in Hawaii. We had several here where people were just prescribing to anyone and then they got cut off. Right. Other places, obviously in Hawaii, you can't just drive across straight state lines, but you know, they had issues with people having a prescription here, prescription here, driving across state lines, having prescriptions, other places and selling it. Right. So there's all these issues happening and then all of a sudden they're, they just cut it off. And what do you do when you cut off people's safe supply? They're more likely to overdose because they're buying stuff from the street that doesn't have uh, the testing behind it.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that I hear that I take away from that story that you just told, um, basically a brief history of the last 20 years on, you know, the transition from, from amphetamines to opioids, but It shows me that, you know, we often look at things um, from a very short-sighted perspective. So, you know, like when all the prescriptions are going out for opioids, you know, we look at it as oftentimes as, you know, it's a problem right now, but it's very hard to see how much the the domino will, the domino impact will be over the next, you know, couple, like two decades at this point. Um, And so it also makes me think of how short-sighted we can be when we're looking at drug users or drug abusers in general. So uh, one of the, in my, the class that I teach, one of our, our go-to guys is Dr. Gabor Mate. And he talks about, um, you know, that oftentimes we're looking at, we look at this chronic drug user, maybe that's harmed us. Maybe we just see them on the streets, whatever. And, uh, you know, that we're like, why do they use those drugs? Why do they do that to themselves, basically, and do it to everybody else? And Mate, so, you know, Dr. Mate would say, well, you're asking why the drugs, but that's not the right question. You should ask why the pain. And so to me, that's the same story here is that the the story is much longer and deeper than we often look at, the, than the perspective that we look at it from. So instead of looking at it, this individual, like, why are you doing this to yourself right now? You'd really, to answer that question, you'd really have to look at their entire life history, maybe all the way to childhood, maybe even preconception mm-hmm. for, some, for some cases. Um, and so I guess my question is is you know how can we look at folks that are often disregarded in society looked down upon such as chronic drug users and how can we look at them as human beings with empathy and as the whole story cuz it can be difficult mm-hmm. those people people that use drugs chronically can be mean to you sometimes and they can do things that mm-hmm. are that hurt themselves that are hard to see and things they can be mm-hmm. say mean things to you there's all sorts of things that can happen so how is how can we you know, as social workers, but even as human beings, how can we, you know, make this transition individually, but even collectively to seeing Ooh. these folks for what they are people with often, if not all the time, like Dr. Another example, Dr. Gabor Muate working in uh, Vancouver at the uh, I can't remember, Portland hotel uh, where the cr- chronic drug users live there. He, he claims that most, if not all, Uh, severely chronic intravenous drug users that he's worked with have been sexually abused um, as a child Um, so that that's pretty those are pretty profound implications right that if if most if not all chronic drug users have something like sexual Mm -hmm. abuse that's plaguing them from their past so how can we get to the point where we we can see see folks as humans as human beings Mm -hmm. unique stories unique problems and that if we spell out or if if we were only able to see that whole story, it would probably make complete sense as to why they are the person that they are in the present, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. 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 And I would say um, sexual abuse is, is pretty rampant, but also just the, as we call it, and so in... Uh, use the term in social work, the adverse childhood experiences um, are very high, you know, uh, research has shown in in people that are chronic, that chronically use drugs. So the question I often ask is, well, what is that drug doing for something, for someone that nothing else is? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not just a question of like, quit doing drugs or like, why can't you quit? It's like, what, what is that? Drug doing for them that nothing else is doing right now. Is it is it masking the pain? Is it that, you know? Um, I, I remember working with someone when I was in San Francisco where they were they were houseless and ice. Uh, you know, meth methamphetamines was their drug of choice, and everyone ke- kept you know couldn't understand what was going on with them. But it finally came out that you know they had schizophrenia, and their Mother was super abusive as a child, like physically abusive, and as an adult they had to sleep outside. They, as they put it, "I have to sleep outside because if um, I sleep indoors, you know she could be behind any door. I can't sleep. I can't sleep where someone has doors, and I can't sleep at night because people attack me while I'm sleeping and steal my stuff. So why? So why wouldn't I do meth?" Why, like please tell me what, what what else will help me as much as meth is helping me right now meet my goals right and uh-huh. you think of things stories like that and there's you know there's a reason, you know, behind people's drug use. It might not be reasons you agree with, you know, and it might not be reasons you understand, and also to say some people just like using drugs too, right? And and so we talk about drugs like, oh, it has to be trauma, it has to be abuse, and also some people enjoy using drugs, and I would say that there's nothing wrong with that, actually, uh, that there are plenty of people that use drugs we can't, but they are taking away the choice to use them responsibly because our drug supply is so adulterated uh, we have, you know, fentanyl is causing massive overdose right now, the fentanyl in our drug supply and, uh, xylazine, uh, is now a huge problem in our drug supply as well, which unfortunately is not, uh, it's, it's not an opioid. So naloxone and, you know, uh, overdose reversal drugs do not work on it, but it's an animal tranquilizer and it has terrible side effects. On, on people who use it, and now both of these are, uh, drugs are found heavily in other drug supplies. So a safer drug supply being available is imperative to keep people who use drugs safe.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I think about my own uh, issues with drug use in the past, which, again, are a long time, uh, a long time ago. And over the years, you know, I've sought uh, therapy, not for drug addiction, but for other, other reasons, other things. And uh, when I talk to a therapist, almost always, whenever I bring up that topic, especially as it was closer to when it actually happened, they would want to talk, they would, how do I put it? They would frame my drug use or my problems with drug with methamphetamine use, they would always frame it as this in a super negative light, like it was this terrible mm-hmm. thing in my life and, and this and that. And so it was, and they were, the therapists seem unable to look at it from any other perspective, like we could only look at it as this huge deficit in my life, and uh, you know I've struggled talking about this because you know, people get mad at me sometimes for talking about it this way, like I'm I'm promoting drug use, but I'm not have no intention of doing that at all. But when I look back on the you know I don't know exactly how long it was a year and a half of of, of meth use of chronic meth use, much of it was positive, um, to be honest with you, and much like it made me come out of a shell that I had on. It took mm-hmm. down some boundaries. Um, it gave me, or it helped produce confidence within myself that had, that stuck with me afterwards, after I stopped, um, you know, it, it basically like they call it like, you know, getting spracked or sprung or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened in my brain. And it took me to, it, it relieved me of some problems. I shouldn't say it relieved me, but it helped, uh, take away some of those barriers that had, uh, prevented me from positive thinking and other, and other things. And now mm-hmm. over the time, you know, using the, the drug for that long of a time, which was, isn't that long in the big scheme of things, but a year and a half can be a long time. It obviously had a lot of negative uh, results, in ne- which is hence why, you know, I checked myself into rehab at like 150 pounds. Um, it uh, had some negative aspects for me. But when I look back on it, you know, I wouldn't take it away for anything. And I'm not saying like everyone should go out and use drugs to solve their problem. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that. I'm just saying that from, from, from the low – the low life that I had at that time, uh, in, in many ways, it wasn't a negative experience. And I think oftentimes when we talk to drug users, especially those that are choosing to use, like you mentioned, some people just like to do it, to do drugs, other people do them to mask problems or whatever, um, but we talk to them from this huge, from this largely like deficit pers- uh, perspective of a deficit, like it's all bad and drugs are bad in themselves. And you know, we know the story. And so I was just wondering if you have any, any thoughts about that, like on how, how we navigate that and how we can maybe shift the perspective. Um, you know, I think uh, Dr. Carl Hart, if you're familiar with him, he's a good guy mm-hmm. to look at with different perspectives on why people use drugs and the autonomy mm-hmm. that might come with that. But largely as a society, right, we look at uh, drugs bad, using mm-hmm. drugs, especially illicit, illicit or illegal drugs as bad, which in many cases they can be, but it's not that simple I was just wondering if you could let it lend any insight or thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, sure. And yeah, Carl Hart's great. He he spoke here in Hawaii uh, uh, pre-COVID, maybe five years ago. It was fantastic to to hear him speak. Lucky we were lucky to have him. Um, for me, well, I think it 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 it's hard because all of the issues that make drugs you know bad for folks come from. Larger societal problems. Right. So people, you know, for example, I'm, well, here, here's an example I use like ketamine. Right. Now ketamine is legalized to use in in therapy. And that's great. Right. And, and you know, it's regulated or whatever. But where where was that? like a couple years ago, right? When people were saying, when I take ketamine, I'm less depressed. When I take ketamine, it, it helps, it helps me mental health wise, you know, or all the people languishing in prison from weed where weed is legalized in so many places. Now there's still people serving life sentences for weed. Right? So we, so in general, overall, we need to abolish all these drug laws and decriminalize drugs that that's the start because we can't deal with the individual problem without these larger problems looming over us. And so, you know, some people use drugs and they like, I'm a good example of that. For me, I used to use drugs. I don't anymore. I never went to rehab. It never became a problem that took over my life in a negative way where I, you know, lost relationships or job. I was very lucky in the sense that I didn't become addicted to drugs. And one day I was just like, this isn't doing anything for me anymore. Right. And then I moved and I moved on. And, you know, I'm lucky. I know I'm lucky for that because I have a sibling who was addicted to methamphetamines for over 20 years. And so I can't answer what the difference between us was, you know, that that happened for them and not me. But, you know, there's, but for people like me, that that that's great. There's, but many other people, they, it doesn't go that way for them. So what do we need to have in place to support them is you know, housing, healthcare, food, job opportunities that were that people can you know, be productive members of society or not, you know, because our worth isn't based on work. Right. But but, you know, all these things set into place where people actually feel like they have opportunities in general to make them not want to use drugs, because if you know, if I already have a felony arrest record, Right. And nobody wants to hire me. And I don't get I can't get, uh, you know, housing vouchers, things like that. And I'm going to be houseless. I'm going to use drugs to stay up at night so I don't get sexually assaulted or robbed. It, you know when I sleep. Right. So we have to break down all these other barriers to make it more possible for people to be parts of other, you know, other other things in society so that drugs that they may not even want to be doing don't become the better appealing choice.
0: Yeah. So you talked a bit about, um, you know, people that are actively using by, by choice. Um, You know, again, going back to that, that moral conflict that I think we can have or folks can have, uh, you know, how do you think that's that a social worker that maybe isn't even familiar, that familiar, maybe they don't have substance use uh, history of their own, they're not mm-hmm. that familiar with it, um, you know. How can they wrap their fingers around how to appropriately, you know, talk with somebody, deal with somebody, mm-hmm. a client that they're working with, you know, that's choosing to continue to use drugs and and be able to support them.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think coming from a non-judgmental, curious place is very <laughs> is very important uh, in terms of of understanding the why's and you know how drugs are affecting people's life. You know, it, it it does a huge disservice to folks. You know, whether it's a therapy setting, syringe exchange setting, to just assume oh you use drugs, this is bad. It's report- I'm going to report you. I'm going to call CPS. You know, I working at syringe exchange. I met people who were way better parents who were actively using drugs than parents I know who are sober. Right. So not just knowing that that's not the totality of who somebody is that they use drugs. And I think that's the problem is, is there's such a stigma around it that oftentimes we see people, you know, we see people, we find out that they use drugs and that's what we see instead of looking at the bigger picture. So I think just keeping that in mind and understanding people's stories and where they're at and understand, understanding, you know, their relationship to uh, there's a, a theory, you know, called drug set and setting. I don't know if you've heard that there's a, a social worker of, uh, and working at Kuloha that, you know, you, what is your relationship to the drug itself? How is that affecting your life? You know, and set and setting is like, how are you using it? Where are you using it? Because somebody who just, you know, uses drugs once in a while with their friends, having fun, goes to a rave, you know, enjoys dancing. That's, yeah, that's, you know, that's a very different experience than someone who is, so, you know, so addicted that they've lost their children and, and are houseless. We're, you know, we can't treat drug use all the same. We have to look at it individually, what those people specifically need for support.
0: Yeah. let's. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Diana in just a minute, but I just wanted to introduce the topic of harm reduction a little bit between us. Um, and so... You've worked in uh, syringe exchange programs. There's also like uh, one of the big things I've heard Dr. Carl Hart talk about is I can't remember how he terms it, but uh, you know, have drug testing availability. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. if you buy some, some illicit drugs off the street, no matter what it is that you can get it tested to find out if there's, for example, fentanyl in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically to find out if the the product that you bought was clean without any fear of consequence. And so what, what is harm reduction in, you know, what are some of the examples and why is it, why is it important? And uh, just to add to that, yesterday you mentioned like going back to the, I can't remember what you mentioned, like the way you said it, but like going back to the streets of it or something like that.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I could t- <laughs> definitely talk about that. Well, I mean, and harm reduction people think of it as a concept. If it's confusing for folks, it's, it's just what it sounds like reducing the harm of an activity that's harmful. So you use harm reduction in your daily life and, and don't even think about it. Right. You drive a car, you, you wear a seatbelt, that's harm reduction, right? You have sex, you use a condom, that's harm reduction. You know, you know that you're going to be a part of a risky activity and you've decided to do something that is, you know, may give you less of a chance of getting STD, right? So harm reduction is in our daily lives. We use it constantly and we just don't even realize it. So it's, but in terms of, you know, drug use, it is around like how do we make the harms of drug use lessened if people are going to use drugs because they are like drugs have been around for I don't know as long as human history probably I'm not the expert on that but and they, they will continue to be drug that people will always find a way to change you know their their minds their where their mindset is right. And so, with harm reduction, when it, with drug use, it looks like syringe exchange. Make, you know, people will inject drugs, making sure that they have clean syringes so that they don't spread hepatitis C and B, HIV. Get, uh, you know, don't reuse syringes so that they get abscesses and you know, staff infections, etc. Uh, it looks like people who smoke their drugs giving them pipes. To use, So they don't smoke off things that, you know, might actually harm their, their throat more, giving them clean things to use. Uh, you can also spread hepatitis C by sharing pipes if someone has a, you know, open wound on their lips. So making people sure people have their own stuff, you know, it, it's um, and but drug testing needs to be more widely available because, you know, I mean, I apologize to anybody listening. If you don't know what fentanyl is, we kind of threw it around. Like, like people all know, but I mean, it is in the news a lot, but just in case like fentanyl is an opioid that is way stronger than heroin, Oxycontin, or the drugs that people are more used to. And usually when you've heard of fentanyl previously, it was like in a hospital setting because it's so strong. It's used when people have surgeries and stuff, but it entered our drug supply several years ago. Um, And is pretty widespread in the United States and worldwide of fentanyl being in our drug supply. And one of the hardest things is is we talked about ice. Fentanyl has been found in ice, ketamine, cocaine. uh, It's found its way into all other types of drugs. And that's a way longer conversation about how the hows and whys of it. But the reality is it is here. And so even if you don't want to be an opioid user and you just like smoke meth, uh, you are at risk for opioid overdose because fentanyl has been found in our drug supply. So we need to really widen the scope of drug testing, make fentanyl test strips more widely available, and also just drug testing in general. Um, There's a lot of syringe exchanges and public health programs that have uh, implemented programs where you can drop in and test your drug supply, which is amazing, uh, but it's not as widespread as it should be. And just know that people have a safer supply so they can use safely without as much fear of of overdose is, I think, a huge piece of harm reduction. And then carrying naloxone, which everybody should have. I have it in my bag. What it is is an opioid antagonist so that if somebody overdoses on an opioid, uh, whether, you know, anything that's opioid based, you can uh, reverse the overdose if you give it to somebody because it blocks the. The opioid receptors and so just carrying it with you wherever you go in case somebody overdoses having it with you if you use any type of drug is very important Uh, it's a band-aid solution truly we need all these other things too but as long as we have it we should we should make it as widely available as possible and um and going the question uh sorry i got off topic a little (laughs) going back to the street is that um yeah, I worked, I started off in harm reduction as a street-based outreach worker and working in a drop-in center, um, t- two different ones in San Francisco, actually. You know, I, I ended up managing a syringe exchange for almost seven years, the statewide syringe exchange here in Hawaii. And, um, you know, I started my own private practice. I miss harm reduction. I love working with folks and, you know, I was always trying to get back to, you know, how to work with folks directly. And, you know, I really struggled with working in nonprofits. I've worked mostly in nonprofits since I was 19 years old. Uh, And it's, you know, there's just so many things that come along. We think of nonprofits and we think, oh, good, harmless. They're not corporations, et cetera. But, you know, they come with their own issues, including being beholden to funding and funders and oftentimes straying away from their mission. Uh, to, you know, what they say they're going to do because it, do- it doesn't coincide with what funders want, what money is available, uh, you know, what looks good to the public, et cetera. So a lot- oftentimes nonprofit organizations really stray from their mission. And so I always really struggled with that, um, especially in my last job. A lot of things changed there that I didn't agree with and were stressful for me that caused, like, a lot of, like, moral injury to be honest that like i i would i would struggle with like is this the right decision this is what we should be doing and it's one of the reasons i decided to work for myself is i could do whatever i want <laughs> i mean just to be blunt and so you know the things i disagree with i can i could do something about and so one of my old uh one of the staff i used to work with this fantastic outreach worker named Paige started a uh it just started a street-based outreach project that's volunteer and it's called Hawaii Opioid Plus Consumer Alliance. And it's just launching. It's going to be a drug users union and street-based outreach nights and weekends. And it's, it's truly. One of the, you know, one of the reasons I love being involved with volunteer stuff is that you could just, you know, for example, be like, oh, you need some in here. You need one, you need 10, you need 50 to hand out to your friends. Here you go. I don't have to take data. You know, I don't have to be like, what's your gender? What's your, you know, what zip code do you sleep in? Like all these barriers to giving services oftentimes. Uh, one of the biggest barriers to me that I have seen that I really struggle with is data collection because the data is out there that harm reduction works. The data is out there that if you just give houseless people housing, (laughs) like things will get better for them. You know, we we have all the information. So data collection just for the sake of data collection because funders want it is actually harmful because it, it takes away what you know, the time and energy and effort that we can give to other people doing other things and often, you know, creates a barrier if they don't meet the, the quote unquote requirements for things. Right. So, you know, I got, I want to give a shout out to remedy Alliance that's uh, based on the continent and they are in the distribution group, a lot, much longer story, but basically you know decided to make naloxone is free and easily accessible to folks and for people with zero budget they will just mail it to you for free so we're like hey we want to start this this new street base street base for the people by the people um harm reduction volunteer org we have zero money can we get some naloxone and two days later i had enough uh injectable naloxone including syringes and baggies to put it in on my doorstep two days later made the 250 kits and just went out on the street and started passing them out and so we're uh, partnering with a uh, swap hawaii if you haven't heard of them it's a sex their local chapter sex worker outreach project and we're doing outreach with them um at least once a week we're trying to go out and just at night on the weekends uh Meet, you know, meet folks where they're at, like, here's as much long as you want. We're trying to get snacks, condoms, hopefully eventually get enough funding to also have some other supplies and, and truly be like, what do you need? What do you want? Because um, one of the issues here in Hawaii is that we still have a one for one based syringe exchange, which studies have shown over time that that's not good public health. Like if people need a syringe, you should they should be able to get one given to them. And if you don't know what one-for-one one means, it's like you have to turn in a used syringe to get one back. And many other states have gone to, like, a distribution-based model where it's like you what do you need here you go because it has shown like people's stuff gets stolen a lot when you're houseless so your 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 used or unused syringes could have been stolen you have nothing to give it happens a lot here people's stuff gets stolen when you're houseless so much in chinatown just daily pretty much uh you know things happen so then you're just kind of denying somebody a clean syringe that's a huge public health risk So the hope is someday that that will change the law. The law here will change in terms of the funding for it, but I would love to just be walking around giving people what they need.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the, so I've been, uh, you know, researching and looking into this topic for a long time now and countless times I've read or heard somebody talk, whether that's a sheriff, a local sheriff, whether it's a politician, some, somebody to do with policy, and they would, they would say basically to you, they would say, well, Leilani, you've given all these people syringes, you want to test drugs, you want to provide naloxone, you're just producing drug addicts. You're giving people, you're making, you're gonna make people more likely to be drug addicts. And it's a totally unfounded claim. But mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could just respond to that because it's the most common, yeah. it's the most common pushback that you see. And it's oftentimes from people in power, like I said, sheriffs, politicians. Yeah
2: it oh it is yeah no i just i hear that all, all the time yeah no i hear you well and I, I think the pushback on that is that people who use drugs have always existed this isn't make like i didn't Find out a syringe exchange exists and be like, "Cool! Now I'm going to go shoot up drugs." <laughs> like, I mean, that's the the thing when things have been decriminalized in, in other countries. I mean, we just have to look to at places like Portugal where drugs have been decriminalized. They haven't had the skyrocketing rate of people using drugs. Like, you know, skyrocketing. It's 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 been more people are getting into treatment more people are getting services they need they're not being locked in prison they're actually getting what will be helpful to them it's you know it's it has not ever there's no proof that a syringe exchange or harm reduction agency opening in someone's neighborhood or city has increased drug use so it's just it's a myth that people push because they don't understand what actual public health is they don't understand what you know, what drugs uh, do to people. And, you know, they, they have all of these preconceived notions that are false that really come from a place of, uh, you know, incarceration and arresting people being the go-to. And so if we can just dispel as many myths as possible about why people use drugs and, uh you know, making these supplies available to them for safer drug use, then hopefully that helps. But of course there's people that just hear drugs and they shut down, right? They won't even hear what you have to say the second you mention that. So I don't know how to reach those people. They need to uh, become more curious about reality.
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to turn it over to Diane in just a minute to have a couple comments. You know, I like that you mentioned Portugal and if my memory serves me correctly, the reason that Portugal started initiating their uh, you know, decriminalization of drugs was uh, to cut, to try to uh, prevent HIV transmission, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. they uh, succeeded in that, dramatically succeeded in that. Um, uh, and so that's the, that epitomizes harm reduction, right? It's to mm-hmm. reduce harm in some way. And so obviously HIV would cause a lot of harm and they were able to do that by decriminalizing yeah. drugs. So yeah. if you're interested in that students or whoever to Portugal. Yeah. It's a great yeah.
2: And can I, can I mention one more thing too around that is like, why, you know, alcohol, the, alcohol is the most dangerous drug, right? In terms of death, in terms of accidents, in cur- terms of suicide, homicide, uh, you know, liver failure, all of the horrible things that go along with alcohol. And yet we allow bars, which are safe consumption sites of alcohol right? Or safer consumption sites, right? Like we just let people freely buy it. um, And, you know, and that is absolutely legal. So think about it that way that, you know, alcohol kills more people than weed for sure. And many other drugs. So what is the difference is that it's become, it took a long time and it, you know, obviously was there, we had prohibition and it was illegal back in the day as well, but people realized prohibition didn't work. And it doesn't work for other drugs either. We have to treat them the same.
0: Yeah. I think it goes back to, you know, as you mentioned before, demystifying drugs and demystifying some of the things about them because culturally, you know, largely due to propaganda, you know, in the early 1900s and into the mid and late 1900s. But, you know, we, we got to demystify what drugs are and, and what they mean. Drugs is such a broad topic. You know, everybody uses Mm -hmm. drugs to some degree. Um, Coffee's we, a drug.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People don't hot.
2: seem to <laughs> seem to bat an eye when someone's miserable at work in the morning and they're like, I haven't had my coffee yet. That person is uh, physically addicted to a drug if they if they need their coffee to get up in the morning, right? But we don't mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. that.
0: It can be harmful, even on your wallet, yeah. right? If you're addicted to caffeine <laughs> and you stop stopping somewhere to buy it every day, do the math. It can be, <laughs> and in other ways, it can be harmful as well. Yeah. As a Matter of fact, that's my number one addiction today is caffeine. I drink a, cu- a couple cup- cups of coffee every morning. Mm-hmm. But I can tell several ways that it affects me, and I would like to relieve myself of that at some point. Um, but yeah, it's an addiction there too. But you know, so, so demystifying things, you know, it made me think of uh, the, sto- the story that you were telling. Made me think of um, the gateway theory. And so most people look at the gateway theory and they say, you know, well, dude is this, this teenage kid, right? He's, he's smoking dope. He's smoking marijuana. Right. So what happens when he gets sick of the marijuana or it doesn't do enough for him? He's, well, then he's going to switch to heroin. Right. And so from my personal experience, and there could be a million different scenarios with this, but from my personal experience and I believe the evidence shows this as well, that that's not true at all. There's very few people that are going to be smoking marijuana, which is largely accepted by enough people to you know to make it readily accessible whether it's legally legal or not um they're not going to be like you know what this weed the thc is not getting me high enough anymore and trust me the thc is really strong these days so it'd be really hard to find you know to where you couldn't couldn't get high anymore but my point here is that that you know in most cases if not all cases somebody's not going to be like, this isn't getting me high enough, so I'm going to switch over to this other drug. The other drug's probably mm-hmm. going to have a completely different effect anyways. I know when I was younger, I, would, I remember I tried cocaine and I was disappointed because I thought it was mm-hmm. going to have something like alcohol or mushrooms or weed or something, and it was completely mm-hmm. completely different. But the point here is that, um, you know, we got to demystify it. If the mm-hmm. gateway theory is true in any way, it would be the sense of, you know, marijuana in some places is, is illegal, so it can put you around other things and a drug dealer and things like that. So mm-hmm whatever it is, cocaine or whatever might be more accessible to you at that point. But it's very unlikely that you're going to be like, Oh, the marijuana is not getting me high enough. I'm going to go and snort some cocaine instead. It doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. Um, and so I think that that's just one of the areas that we, we have as a society and in, in, especially in the United States of America, we got to demystify these things because many people are so yeah. like, uh, their imagination from the propaganda that they received, uh, their imagination has gone wild and they're completely off and they have no idea what the hell they're talking about.
2: Yeah, Um, And and part of that is how bad our education system is around drugs. Like, I don't know about where y'all grew up, but we had dare, you know, the whatever drug, Resistance education, <laughs> drug abuse resistance education. Dare made me want to do drugs. They were just like, "Oh, don't do drugs. It, it makes you, <laughs> you know, you you smoke weed. You're going to be lazy and watch TV and not do anything." And I was like, "What? That doesn't sound terrible, right?" I mean, they they had a cop teaching it in my school. I, I always remember they brought put a cop in, gave us no information except like, "Don't do drugs. It's bad for you. It makes you a bad person. It makes you do bad things." Right? That is the extent of the drug education I had as a child. And I remember I threw it away at some point, but I remember in like kindergarten, they made me sign a pledge. I will never do drugs. And I had a little card (laughs) that I could put in my wallet when I got older. And when you just say don't do drugs, it does not give any information whatsoever. So kids only hear what they hear from um, same with, I mean, it's the same with sex education, right? If we don't have comprehensive sex and drug education in school, you hear bits and pieces from TV, from movies, from your friend's older brother down the street, who might who tells you that you can't get pregnant if you drink Mountain Dew right I mean these are real things I've heard doing it like sex ed over the years right it's the same with drugs like we just we we people piece it together they have false information and it makes it so dangerous right and going back to death work like we don't it's it's like our education system so broken we have health education nobody you don't get get Death and grief isn't brought up, you know, disease. What, what does it look like when someone has cancer? What happens to them? Like, that's not what they talk about in health education. My health ed class was taught by the PE teacher and he said, and his whole thing was like, eat, eat healthy. Like, what is that? What is that? What kind of health education is that? Right. So all of these systems are absolutely broken and need to be revamped so that we put people out in the world who are educated about real things that they need to know about.
0: Yeah, that whole good, bad narrative. You know, I look back to my own experience in D.A.R.E. and really the only thing that I remember was, you know, it was taught by a cop. I remember that. I don't remember if they were nice or whatever. I have no idea. No. And I remember that we talked about as kids, we talked about we didn't even know what the hell the name meant. Um, at the time. <laughs> didn't understand the, as simple as it seems to me now, that I didn't. we didn't even understand the vocabulary in the word yeah. D.A.R.E. Um, and so it was, that's all I would say is, is that it, wow. largely it was so ineffective from my is that I don't even recall, like yeah. anything good or bad. Um, my, one of the, one of our members in the audience, Mark actually just wrote on uh, on DARE recently, so maybe he can touch on it in a minute, but in the essence of time, we're moving right along. And so yeah. uh, I know Diana has some, thought, has some uh, thoughts and some things she wants to talk about regarding substance abuse and uh, harm reduction. So Diana, I wanna turn the mic over to you.
1: All right, very cool. Um... So one thing I did want to touch on, Leoni was that, you know, you have such extensive experience and you've been able to create such a great dialogue here in this space. But I think when we're having these discussions in social work spaces between, you know, professors and students and people actively working in the field, it's easy to kind of get into our own bubble and forget how the rest of the world tends to mm-hmm. react to these topics. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how. The communities that you've worked in have reacted to these programs like do you get a lot of community support or do you receive pushback
2: yeah oh that's a great question and you know i would say even in social work spaces, like definitely the social work program i was in was wildly more conservative than I ever thought it could a social work program would ever be Um, you know so I I, even in that program I I thought that I was among peers and got pushed back all the time like oh you work at the syringe exchange and it's like oh man are you future social worker (laughs) what's happening here but um, so I, I would say that largely I'm un- an unpopular person to have at a party because my two main loves and, and things that I you know focus on in life is death and drugs. Right, so those are not topics that most people want to even touch on at all. But you know, you know, people make the mistake of asking me what I do, and then I, I, when I'm very, very honest, the look on their faces is often why, why did we, <laughs> why did I ask this? So I actually get pushed back a lot around working at syringe exchange. Uh, I when I lived in California, I think it, ha- it was more. Well, you know, I lived in San Francisco when I worked in Syringe Exchange and then Sacramento. uh, I volunteered at an exchange there when I was living there. And it was more widely understood. I think it had been around long enough and had been more main, not mainstream, but people kind of understood what it was a little more. And when I told people that's what I did for work, there was, you know, I get some pushback, but there was more curiosity there, I feel like when I moved to Hawaii, I think in the nine years uh, that I have been here and worked in harm reduction, it has changed a bit. But I think when I first got here, especially I, everyone I talked to was like, syringe exchange, what's that? Like, even though this is the, the syringe exchange in Hawaii is the oldest statewide syringe exchange in the country. Over 30 years now, it's existed. But the person who first ran it for many years... The first ex- the first director of it had the notion of keep it in the shadows. Like if we don't go, if we're not seen, then people won't mess with us. Like just let's do our thing, which was not really the right way to go about it. Because there's people who've lived here their whole lives that I've met who didn't know syringe exchange was legal here or existed, and so. There's, I think, there's just a lot of misinformation and lack of knowledge around it because it's not, it wasn't taught or spoken of freely. That that harm, what harm reduction is, and then. Also, you know, just social, con- it, it's a lot more socially conservative in Hawaii, and a lot of that, I think, has has to do with how, you know, colonized we are and how big religion plays a part in, in li- our lives here, and I, I do feel that that is one of my biggest struggles. You know, I'm Native Hawaiian, but I did not grow up in Hawaii. I grew up in California, and that has been the biggest struggle for me is... Is conservatism around these things? I think that we need to dispel a lot of myths, but but also just to say that when it comes to the drug use piece, some of it is because ice, as we mentioned before, meth is rampant here and has been for a long time. So without the the other the knowledge about harm reduction, people talking story about these things all people know is their personal story. It's like, well, my loved one was addicted to ice and did this and this and this, and it hurt me. So I hate drugs. And that is understandable. It's understandable to come from that, but we have to look at the bigger picture and sometimes it could be hard to do that when you have been like pretty badly harmed by drug use in your loved one's lives and your family. Uh, So on one hand it's, it's understandable you know that so many folks have such a negative view of decriminalization of drugs and harm reduction but I, I do feel that if once we get the word out we we understand it more and it becomes more accepted that people will understand that harm reduction is is better than just pushing absence on people and saying don't use drugs and I just I do want to give a shout out to um, Papa Olokahi who recently Uh, in the last year released a harm reduction toolkit for that's like culturally based for native Hawaiian communities talking about like what we are missing, you know, because, because a lot of people, you know, like I said before, drug, what is drug doing for someone that something else isn't. And a lot of us are, you know, disconnected from culture, disconnected from feeling like we have roots disconnected from community and you know one of the things that we can do to help folks who use drugs is making them feel like they're a part of something bigger and so culturally rooted you know uh, drug education culturally rooted substance use treatment it can be incredibly helpful uh, especially here in indigenous communities
1: all right thank you so much And if we could take things to, honestly, an even more macro level for a minute, I've been looking at your website in preparation for this podcast, and I saw that you talk a lot in your private practice about things like the inherent trauma of living under a capitalist system, especially for a group that Mm experienced discrimination or oppression under that system. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping you could touch on that a little bit and talk about some of the intersections between that and the conversation we've been having today like, what are the bigger yeah. social or societal issues that you think are contributing to these problems
2: yeah ooh, that's a that's a good question well the you know the the trauma the daily trauma of living in a society that doesn't care about us the and it's, for some people it's incredibly compounded right like if you're black and queer and disabled like you're basically waking up to the news every day that people just don't even want you to exist pretty much, right? Like, you know, in the, especially the last few years, the horrible turn politics have taken. You know, and not saying shit was good before because <laughs> it was not, right? It was not some rosy view of what was happening before, you know, COVID and before Trump was president. Like things have always been bad. This country was based on, you know, indigenous genocide and slavery, right? So not like things have been rosy, but, you know, we're slipping back in terms of the rights of of people who are queer, people people of color. We just rolled back, you know, a abortion rights i mean there's people there's people who wake up every day and their lives are not that affected by all of this and those people are incredibly privileged right there it's to, to not be worried about this stuff to not notice it or care like what life do you have that is so privileged that this isn't affecting you this is affecting so many of us you know and so that the the, the daily trauma Of existing in a capitalist society and trying to survive is it takes its toll on people's mental health and it's no wonder that people turn to drugs or other things to self-soothe because you know, how How else, what else is getting them through the day is, uh, you know, we need to make more opportunity for community for folks, especially because it is incredibly lonely time out there. Loneliness is rampant because we are so disconnected.
1: Right, thank you for that. And um, I know we're wrapping up my portion of the conversation here. So I know we've already touched on this, but I was hoping you could provide some final words and insights when we're talking about harm reduction. If, you know, if people even know what harm reduction is, I think the conversation a lot of times goes back to drug use and specifically Mm -hmm. needle exchanges and overdose prevention. But harm reduction is, you know, it's a much bigger idea than that. So I was wondering if you could tell us some ways that you think people could implement general harm reduction practices and paradigms sort of mm-hmm. into any type of social work
2: practice. Yeah. Social work practice in general. Yeah. Um, going, going back to social work in general and, and being a therapist and a social worker, just meeting people where they're at is one of the biggest tenets in harm reduction. And that, you know, means we're not pushing your agenda on people or where you're at, like truly hearing them, seeing who they are as a person and meeting them where they're at. So if somebody's not ready to quit using drugs, okay, how can you reduce the harm of their drug use? If somebody is not, you know, ready for action in other areas of their life, like, like eating disorders or, you know, making other change, like where, where can you meet them to help them where they're at? Because if you push people to be what you want them to be, that doesn't work and shame doesn't work. You know, we put like too often we use shame as a tool. To try to change people's behaviors, and and truly over time, it, it is not sustainable. It does not work. It may work for a moment for some people, but you know once you know they relapse or or, or different you know action slip that they go right back into that shame. Right. So meeting people where they're at, non judgment is you know being non judgmental, being curious, like trying to understand where other people are coming from. Leave your shit at the door. You know don't be putting your beliefs on the people you serve do people say stuff i don't agree with all the time a hundred percent you know when i worked in syringe exchange and as a therapist people say stuff that like i 100 percent disagree with is that my my place to deal with that on my own yes like you don't you know you don't put your shit on those folks they're there for services they're to see you're there to serve them Right. So and I and I one of the things that is I'll be honest, like I was talking, I will talk shit on my social work program I went to. I went to Hawaii Pacific University and I had two two really cool professors and uh, some classmates that were questionable that I'm like, how did you graduate them? And now they are social workers who were homophobic who were racist, who had all these other issues. And so there's there are people who absolutely shouldn't be working in social work that I met in my social work program because of their racism and other issues. And so because of that, um, I question social workers profession sometimes, not all of us are altruistic or doing this for the right reasons. Some people are putting their views and harming other people who are social workers. Just because someone is a social worker does not make them a good person. Can you hold on one second, please? Someone is knocking at my door. Sorry, that was a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> they would not stop knocking and yelling uh, for me to open the door sorry about that it was i could not concentrate so um sorry i was kind of going off anyway it's probably maybe good somebody uh stopped me <laughs> from ranting but like just to say i guess what i was trying to say is like not all people who are social workers are good people and not all people who are social workers are doing right by the folks that they serve so you know i think all social workers need to be out there questioning themselves like how am i you know how am i actually serving the community And is, and also, is this the right job for me?
1: Thank you very much for those insights. I guess I'll turn it back to Professor Stetler now.
0: Thanks, Diana. I thought those were great questions. Um, It's funny that somebody was pounding on your door right now, because I don't know, about a month ago or so, I was doing a podcast with another guest, and just about this time towards the end, I guess my landlord had sent somebody over to work on the gutters in our house, and... uh, the guy just came up and sat right outside my window on the roof right here and started smoking a cigarette, right, and blowing water into the gutters as I was doing a live podcast. And I was like, "What the hell's going on?"
2: Oh no! Um, no. Anyways,
0: luckily it was towards the end of the podcast, but I can empathize with with the the you know the abrupt uh, disruptions. I don't um, know
2: what to do. I have they come every weekend, and I have asked them to stop coming and. I don't think they care apparently.
0: <laughs> so. I've never had a Jehovah's witness come by, but I, I grew up in Utah, so I'm familiar with missionaries um, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's uh, get to the the audience. If you have a question, I know some of you have already put them in the chat or comments. Um, feel free to put them in the chat or if you want to call in and chat. Uh looks like we got Mark. So let's just go to Mark right now. Uh, Mark, you there? You hear us? Yeah, how's it going? Yeah.
2: Um, just to clarify, are you asking if if people were wanted it, but they weren't in, they didn't have the capacity to to ask for it? Or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time understanding what the question is. Okay, <sighs> got it. Okay, so so this is a good question because this is um, something really important to understand about medical aid in dying is, is one of the you know things right. that with the capacity evaluations is if people don't have the capacity to ask for medical aid in dying they can't do it, they can't ask for it and so I think that it's, it's the same thing with DNR we have issues we have a lot of disability justice groups which is totally understandable pushing back like wondering if DNR is, and and things like DNR uh, do not resuscitate uh, and medical aid
0: A little bit of time for some last minute phone calls, but we do have some uh, some activity in the chat. So let's start with Kevin. Kevin says on the topic of death education. What do you feel the impact is for those who have died and come back. I survived several fatal overdoses in my active addiction and it was incredibly strange and inspiring experience.
2: I, I will be honest, that is not something I feel like I have the authority to speak on. I don't really uh, have a lot of knowledge or interactions with folks who've talked to me about like near-death experience. I think uh, that's a great question, but I'll be honest, not, not one I feel like I can answer.
0: Yeah, Kevin, if you want to add more insight, feel free to call in or, uh, or type some mm-hmm. more in the chat because I know you said you have personal experience with it. Uh see. Alicia's complimenting you. Amazing work. I had no idea that therapists had the capacity to help in that way. Deb, she says, uh, I've got experience working in volunteer hospice, and I'm wondering how your work is similar or differs. Do you have any context on that?
2: Yeah. Um, I actually used to volunteer in hospice myself as well. It, it looks very different in terms of uh, when I was hospice Volunteer. I, I had mentioned earlier, like a lot of people think of death work and they think of bedside work. And that is what I did as a hospice volunteer was sit at somebody who was dying bedside and, and talk story with them and spend time with them. Uh, so it, it, I think hospice volunteering looks more like that sort of direct service. Um, but you know, it is a type of death work. You're a hospice volunteer, you're doing death work. You know, you comfort your friend whose loved one died, you're doing death work. Like, we actually all are a part of community death care work in different ways at different parts of our lives, and we don't even know it.
0: Yeah, right on. Looks like we got a couple more just comments here. Deb added, uh, everything you've been talking about this is a constant topic at work with friends and with family. Thank you for your work. Um Heather. You said thank you out of all the podcasts i've listened to this is by far my favorite we need to talk more about meeting people where they are at without looking for more data this clearly falls in lives in line with our social work competencies and values yeah so thank you everybody for your comments uh, let's make sure i don't have anybody in the queue i don't um so let's start to wrap things up and i want to do that by uh, just talking a little bit more um i want to you know, when I went to, uh, to, to rehab, you know, like I said, about 20, 21 years ago, something like that, one of the biggest things that I took away and that actually that helped me at that time was the serenity prayer. We said it after every, uh, you know, every Narcotics Anonymous meeting, oftentimes AA ended it as well either with that or the Lord's Prayer or something like that. But, you know, the serenity prayer says, uh, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And this was highly valuable for me back then because it put me into a place of humility and, and um, you know, at that time not trying to control everything and accepting things, some of the things for as they were. Um, however, as time went on in my life, uh, and I've spoken about this many times on the podcast and in class and whatnot, uh, my perspective completely changed and I felt that I was actually the opposite of powerless and I had all the power in the world to change and affect my life. And that the big problem was, is that I had almost been tricked or duped or hoodwinked into believing that I didn't have power to change things. I believed that about myself. And I don't think that that's what the serenity prayer is trying to get at. I think that's more of a society thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the serenity prayer did kind of buy into that just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to give you a couple of examples in it's, I could give you a million examples in my personal life, but I just want to give you a couple of examples in working as a social worker, uh, uh, several years ago, now as well, I supervised a juvenile treatment facility in Salt Lake City, Utah. Troubled youth from all around the United States, conduct disorder, everything from conduct disorder to like fetal alcohol syndrome, developmentally uh, delayed problems, things like that. Um, but we got to a point where we didn't have any money, and so they cut off all of the uh, they called them outings for the kids. So basically, the kids were just stuck in the treatment facility. They didn't have any money, and so. I could have just said, you know, well, that's just the way it is. We don't have any money. Uh, just listen to my supervisor. Or I was a supervisor, but listen to the ad administration and, uh, and just give it up. But instead, I looked at it and I was like, well, if we don't have any money, we can make some money. And so we got the kids and we did car washes and we did all sorts of things. And we made a bunch of money to take them out on outings that whole summer, expensive outings even, you know, to amusement parks, water parks, some other things like hiking and stuff. But we really changed it. And, and talking to those kids later on and at that time and other staff, that that was some of the most meaningful times in all of our lives, staff and, and, and client kid later on, while I was working at or interning at Kualoha Olomau like I said, I, I got, uh, uh, many of the different, what other, uh, counselors there viewed as the difficult clients, the unsavory clients, that they didn't want to work with. They pushed to me. And, um, like I was saying earlier in my story that uh, the, I shouldn't say everyone, but many of the other people that worked at Kuoloha, you know, they looked at these, these, these troubled, difficult clients as, you know, basically being unredeemable, untenable, like not being, you know, not worthy basically. And uh, I didn't see it that way. And I guess that's what makes me good at working with the difficult clients is I don't look at it that way at all. I actually look at it as like a privilege and an honor to be able to work with them and, and mm-hmm. get to know them. But uh, I had this idea that I wanted to take the kids, or not the kids, the, the, uh, the Hamana up to a place called Ho'oulu Aina, up at the top. If you're familiar with Oahu, it's at the top of the Kalihi Valley. Mm-hmm. It's a native Hawaiian, and you want to call it a program or whatever, but they their main goal is they get rid of all of the invasive species of trees and plants and they utilize them for something good. Like, you know, making uh, like they take the bamboo and they'd make um, they take it out and then they repurpose it uh, towards canoes or to make fences to keep the pigs out of the taro, things like that. Uh, But there's times when you can, anybody can go up there, but there's also other times where you can schedule and bring, you know, whether it's kids from a school or in my case, the hamana that I worked with at Kualoha, up there to work the land with them and to talk story with the Kuna, with the native hawaiians and i had had such a pro- profound experience there i went there as a student at, with uh manoa um, but that i wanted to take the hamana up there and i got not just like negativity from the other staff but i got like full blowback about what a dumbest F and idea they didn't use the f word but basically the dumbest F and idea in the world okay. these guys are crippled basically they're not gonna i mean they, they may not have used those words but basically that it's not gonna work, you know, these, these drug addicts are too far gone, they're not gonna be able to work up there, it's gonna cost too much money to bring them over there, whatever. Well, we talked about Lisa earlier, well, Lisa was my ally, my old, uh, I don't know mm-hmm. what, she was, she was the director, I'm not sure, she was, I guess she was my, uh, my practicum supervisor. And, uh, you know, she's always, tell me about why you wanna do it and why you think it's gonna work. And I broke it down to her and I just told her about how meaningful it was and I just don't think that that's gonna be the case. When we get them up there, and so we did it, and we had a big meeting, and uh, Lisa and I s- spoke our case, and we, we rented a big uh, van, which I remember was, like, incredibly expensive, so she must have really believed in it. But anyways, I took about 10 of them up to uh, Ho'ulu Aina, up to work the land, and uh, I'm trying to remember his name, Uncle something, Uncle, can't remember his name. Uncle something, he's up there, and he started talking story with us, and, you know, he's I could tell that his mind was working too. Like, what am I going to, this is a different group than I usually have. What am we going to do? But I'm telling you those 10 Hamana that I took up there, they worked their asses off. Like people that were hunched over and bent over, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, twisted limbs, things like that. You know, their, their addiction, folks that their addiction uh, over decades had taken its toll on them, mm-hmm. but they are working their ass off. They paid attention to the, to wish I could remember his name, uncle. Anyways, paid attention to him, talking story. They, it was very meaningful for them, so much that they were sleeping in the van on the way home. They were tired. Um, but my point here is that uh, I used, I, I had a class when I was at UH Manoa taught by Miss Angela Davis, and one of, she repurposed the serenity prayer. And instead of the original one, she says, I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I can no longer accept. And those two instances that I just, those stories, they're just small stories. And Mm -hmm. all of us can find those in our lives, but there are just times where everybody pushed back on me. And, you know, I found another way as a social worker to make things work. You know, I couldn't accept the way that things were. And so I changed them. And so, Leilani, my last question to you is I want to know where's an area either that you've induced change or an area of social work or harm reduction or death work um, or all of the above that you feel like needs to be changed. And we need to take that power and we need to make that change. Hmm.
2: Oh, that's a good question. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I would say one of the big, I, I think I, I, this, this could be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> again. Like like earlier, this is something we could talk about for an hour, but I think the shortest answer I can come up with is I, I feel like there's about five different things I would say, but, but one thing that, that, you know jumps in my head with both death work and harm reduction work is professionalism like the issue of making making them move far away from things the grassroots of what these two things are so for example with harm reduction uh you know harm reduction came from the people like even the syringe exchange that was started here is about one one you know man doing outreach started the syringe exchange here so got it going right and so uh, you know harm reduction has inherently been by the people for the people other people who use drugs you know rinsing syri- before syringes were available to you know for exchange like getting what a hold of what they could rinsing them out cleaning them even like you know getting a hold of condoms like doing the work to take care of each other right taking care of their own community and unfortunately harm reduction has really been co-opted and turned into this weird professionalism thing where, you know, there's all this money in it right now from, you know, opioid settlements and and public health realizing harm reduction's a good idea, but it's get it's straying farther and farther away from what its original roots were in terms of, uh, you know, getting the cops involved in harm reduction. <laughs>